Today is July 1st, 2020. Folks, hang in there. We're doing all right, making it through this coronavirus pandemic together. We're already past the halfway point of 2020. Can't wait to get this fucking year over with. I am doing a special intraday edition of the podcast today because when the man Peter Schiff himself says he's got time for you, you make time whenever that is. And I was giving him some shit yesterday about not coming on on Twitter. Some friendly shit, of course, but stoked to have him with me today. Before we get started, I want to shout out my patrons. Patrons are the people that make this podcast possible. Patrons sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout them out. I'm going to give you the two rules for the podcast, and we're going to be on our way. First and foremost, my official and exclusive gold and silver provider, the only place that QTR orders from is JM Bullion. JM Bullion has been in business for almost a decade. They have done over $3 billion worth of business. They have amassed themselves quite a lovely reputation for a very good reason, and that's because I like the cut of their jib. They ship their products quickly. They have a great turnaround. They got great stock. And QTR podcast listeners have their own representative at JM Bullion that they can reach out to exclusively just by emailing Kathy with a K at jmbullion.com. So if you don't want to deal with automated customer service and all that bullshit and nonsense, just know that JM Bullion likes QTR podcast, likes our listeners, and has a saleswoman, the lovely Kathy, set up for us that we can reach out to whenever we want. Or you can just send her a nice note and say, hey, hope you're having a good day. But better to send her a note and say, hey, I'm ordering some shit and I'd like free shipping because QTR said so. This podcast also brought to you by my longtime supporter, Pete Hedgetus at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is an online day trading and investing community that is, in my opinion, One of the best. Why? Because Pete started the community to avoid the problems with all of the other day trading communities that have started, many of which, not all of them, there's some good ones out there, but many of them, they just like to front run their members and take your money and pretty much leave you out to dry. And Pete had belonged to a couple of those services and said, I want to start my own to do business the right way and do things honestly and not have to deal with those problems and not have to give those problems to my community or my members. So at the Trader's Path, it's all about open discourse. It's about exchanging ideas. It's about learning together. And Pete is a wonderful, honest person to do business with. He offers daily watch lists, investor education, a live stream of everything that they do on a daily basis. They trade in all kinds of markets, red, green, up, down, and sideways. Check out my friend Pete over at thetraderspath.com. Link is in the podcast description. Tell him QTR sent you and you want a discount. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. Few tools have been around for as long as the Sang Lucci Steam Room. The Sang Lucci Steam Room has been monitoring money coming into the options market, which can help you figure out which direction equities are going to move sometimes. They've been doing this for almost a decade now. The Steam Room is really the OG in terms of tracking options flow software. The uh, If you've ever heard the term call sweeps, put sweeps, those are all terms that Wall Street Jesus created almost a decade ago. These guys were pioneers in tracking unusual options activity, um, and nobody does it better than them. Plus, I know Sang Lucci, Charlie Bathgate actually will be on the podcast very soon. They are friends of mine. They're honest people, and I'm happy to recommend them. It's a product that can pay for itself if you don't use it like a fucking herb, as Sang Lucci would say. Link is in the podcast description. Reach out to Lucci. Tell him QTR said you get a discount. 
Otherwise, you're walking. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my buddy Robert Mizello, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russell Valenti, Nicholas Parks, Nathan Michaud at Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause, Chris Bede, Ken R., my homeboy Crichton Titus, Big Dog, Will Smith, Michelle Koenig, Dylan Davis, Mr. J.K. Cunningham, and of course, Stank Love is in the house. I also want to shout out some of my newest patrons, people that have signed up recently, and some people that have been with me for a little while as well. And as soon as the list loads, there it is. All right, I want to say what's up to Alan Weber. Brian Pearson is in the house. Thank you, brother. Brad Potter, Dutch Cruz is here with me, Jesse Snyder and Joel Harford. Got your emails the other day. Thank you guys very much. BTF, is that like DTF? Uh, Ian Boyle and my friend uh, Scott Foreman is in the house. Sean Stain Street, thank you so much. And some people that have been with me for a while, like Randy, uh, David, Chris Wagner, Carson, Mason Bustle, Pivotal Capital, Mike Toshiri, thank you, my good friend, uh, JD Tita, Mick Dosty, and uh, Mark Wollard, thank you guys very much. The two rules for this podcast is I do recommend a two-drink minimum. It will be 10 or 11 a.m. on the East Coast when this drops. Uh, it is Wednesday. That is middle of the work week. I do expect that most people will be getting a buzz on anyways, despite that fact, uh, because that's just how my listener base gets down. And, uh, you know, we're libertarians here. We don't judge people. Whatever you guys want to do is fine with me. It's a very free environment. Finally, I hold no licenses, no registrations. I am not an investment advisor. This is definitely not financial advice. Please do your research elsewhere. I appreciate all of the one-star ratings on on, uh, iTunes from you guys, and you have got it right. This is, in fact, the worst podcast in history. With that being said, let's get the damn show started. All right, I am honored, as usual, to have Peter Schiff take some time out of his day to chat with me, even though I know he has a very busy upcoming schedule. Uh, Peter, what's going on, brother? How are you today? I'm doing fine. It's a nice morning here in Connecticut, and uh, you know the, the markets have you know, been going my way, which is always helpful, uh, but certainly don't like the direction the country is moving in as an American citizen it troubles me uh you know quite a bit to actually witness what's what's going on especially as we're nearing uh, the fourth of july where a lot of americans like to celebrate american history now they really should be mourning uh <laughs> american history and, and and the loss of individual freedom and liberty and really what's going on right now to you know massively uh change the, the culture and the character of the nation which has been an ongoing process it's not like you know, we're just suddenly losing our freedoms. Uh, that's been going on for generations. But I think we're really accelerating that curve uh, very rapidly right now. Yeah, what do you see as playing uh, a big role in that right now? One of the things I wanted to ask you about yesterday, there was a headline that hit the wires. Uh, I didn't hear, I don't want to overlap too much with your podcast yesterday because I thought you did a great podcast yesterday and I encourage my listeners to check it out. Uh, But one of the things that I saw come across the Bloomberg terminal yesterday that I didn't hear you comment on was this comment that Neil Kashkari made, which was that the Fed wants to target black unemployment specifically. And I wanted to ask you, how, how would a central bank do that? And you know, how far off the path from the mandate of just creating jobs in general is it to section off a specific group, whether it's whether it's well, African-Americans, I mean, look, whether it's, you know, Asian people, whether it's white people, doesn't really matter. I mean, how, how far off the path is that? 
Well, the Fed can't create jobs anyway. I mean, let alone target those jobs to one particular ethnic group or minority. I mean, it's just impossible. Now, I would imagine maybe what they're uh, considering is somehow uh, backstopping uh, loans that uh, banks may make to minority lenders. I don't know, kind of uh, some type of guarantee, but I don't know how they would do that or how they would somehow uh, misdirect resources from you know more creditworthy borrowers. I mean, I, I mentioned on my podcast yesterday that look, African Americans who are creditworthy, you know, are able to borrow money. Uh, you know, just like creditworthy white borrowers can borrow money. The, the the bank doesn't care what color the borrower is. The bank cares about the capacity of the borrower uh, to repay the loan. Um, and so they look at things like collateral and income and, and credit history. They don't look at their skin color. Uh, to suggest that that's the case. In fact, I, you know, uh, Congress, uh, one of the congressmen, African-American congressmen, got uh, Powell to supposedly confess that the reason that so many blacks are being denied loans is because of racism uh, and, and, and that the reason that there's a wealth gap between African-Americans and, and, and white Americans is racism. And that is basically the narrative that we have now is uh, Black Lives Matter is succeeding in, in basically forcing the nation to admit to a problem that doesn't exist, which is systemic racism, and then blame every problem in the African-American community on that systemic racism. And, and the reason they're doing that is they want to basically convince African-Americans that they have no chance, that they can't possibly succeed no matter how hard they work, no matter how hard they try, because there's these racists out there that won't let them. And, and therefore, if you can't succeed on your own because of systemic racism, well, then you need government. Government has to help you succeed. And, and that's, the, that's the real motivation here, to empower government, to drive socialism. Do you want to – I mean, I got somebody at my front door, and now Go dogs are barking. Go get them. Go get them. I'll pause. All right, hold on. <laughs> All right, dog, get the dogs out back. This is Peter Schiff flipping out at his house while I sit here and sip my coffee, knowing full well that I don't like to do edits to my podcast. Yeah, so yeah, so this is all politically motivated. It's got nothing to do with Black Lives Mattering. It's really about driving this socialist agenda and pushing through uh, policies like reparations for slavery or uh, you know, to basically coerce uh, corporations into making large charitable donations to Black Lives Matter just to prove that they're not racist. You know, everybody now has to agree with this, right? If you, um, if you state that the problems in the African-American community are not the result of racism, if you actually offer other, you know, more logical explanations for these problems, then you're labeled a racist. I mean, I think that was why you had Stefan Molyneux kicked off of, um, of YouTube because he doesn't believe that the problems are the result of racism. He has other explanations for those problems. And, and Black Lives Matter doesn't want anybody talking about those other explanations. I mean, I talk about them. Uh, I, I, you know, I blame a lot of the problems on the U.S. government, uh, on the welfare state, on uh, the minimum wage, on uh, anti-discrimination laws, on local governments, on, on terrible public schools, on occupational licensing laws 
I blame the problems on the Fed, on artificially low interest rates, and uh, the, the effect that that has on savings and investment and misdirecting capital away from the real economy uh, to Wall Street. Uh, so there's all sorts of actual explanations for these problems. But to simply claim that it's racism you know, is nonsense. And A, yes, it, you know, it, it makes people feel powerless to do anything, and therefore they need government because the only way to get around it. But you know, the reality is there's not a lot of racism in America. There's certainly significantly less racism than there was 50 or 100 years ago. And despite that, the problems that we're complaining about are worse now than they were 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, so clearly, if the problems are getting worse as racism is diminishing, then racism is not the, the reason for the problems. But, you know, the fact that so many people are afraid to be called a racist shows you how much we don't like racism. I mean, that, that, right now, the worst thing that you can be called is a racist. Right? And, and in order to avoid being called a racist, you'll do almost anything. Which shows you, I mean, if everybody was racist, then who would care if we were called, if you got called a racist? You go, yeah, I'm a racist, just like everybody else. I mean, it's like you have all these uh, African Americans who just believe that all whites are racist, and then you have white people who believe everybody, all the other whites, but themselves are racist, right? Everybody will say, right? I mean, are you a racist, Chris? No. Right. Although now they say if you deny you're a racist, that's proof you're a racist. <laughs> but I mean, there's there's all these white people who are not racist. Yet they assume all the other white people are. Why would you make that assumption? I mean, it's like, you know, why do you, why do you think the worst of, of, of your fellow human beings? Well, we have you know, to. And yes. You know. <laughs> I think I, I mean, it's fair to acknowledge that there is racism in the country. I mean, I've I've seen it firsthand and I've seen it. In, yeah, of course, there's racism. But racism places. is not racism is not the problem uh, that is causing all these uh, economic disparities that exist and since racists are in the minority, I mean, I mean, they're a small minority, right? You'd agree that the majority of people are not racist. That's correct. Yeah, I would agree that. Right. And that means the majority of employers are not racist, the majority of businesses, the majority of banks, and, and, and there is competition. And, you but know, you can point black consumers like have a lot, black consumers have a lot of money and there's all sorts of businesses that are competing are for that money, for that talent. I mean, they're there. And to the extent that there are some entrepreneurs that are racist, and generally that racism will take a back seat to their own greed, their own desire to expand their business and to and, and to you know, and they're working in a competitive marketplace. You can't afford uh, to to be racist if you're going to let your racism impact your decisions because you're going to be less successful. Other people who aren't. Uh, you know, racist and, and, and making decisions based on those factors who are making decisions based on purely economic factors, uh, they're going to outcompete you. And, and so the, the whole, this whole idea that racism is the problem, I mean, that, you know, and yesterday they said that uh, the guy, this, the congressman got pal to admit that blacks are being denied loans because they're black. They're being denied loans because the loan officers are racist. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, every loan officer at every bank, they're just turning down all these creditworthy uh, black applicants. I mean, even though their business is making loans, do they don't want to make them. Do you even denote <laughs> your ethnicity on a loan application? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't really borrowed money, but I don't think so. I mean, obviously, if you if, <laughs> if you if, <laughs> but I mean, if you go in person to a bank, obviously they can see. Well, you what know, about what this, Peter? What about people that'll argue? 
that'll make the following argument. Bank branches, and this was a story that I read maybe a year ago, bank branches in lower socioeconomic areas and predominantly minority neighborhoods have closed. JP Morgan, Bank of America, a lot of these banks that have chose to shutter uh, branches to decrease their brick and mortar footprint in order to save money have chosen predominantly minority dominant areas to close first. They, I'm sure that those decisions were not motivated by the fact that there were a lot of minorities there. It was probably a, a decision that was motivated by the profit and loss of that particular bank. You know, and the fact that it was located in a poor community that just happened to be you know, home to more minorities, it's more probably related to the lower income of the community right. than the, you know, whether the, whether the lower income people are black or white, if they happen to be disproportionately black, well then, you know, it's going to have a, a, a disproportionate impact, but it doesn't mean that the motivating factor for the closure had anything to do with the racial uh, makeup of the community. But I tell you, you know, given the proliferation of online banking, and there's so many ways that you can now apply for a loan online that I wouldn't think it's even as big a problem today as it would have been 20, 30 years ago. It's not like the only people that can give you a loan are, is your, is your local bank. I mean, you could get loans all over the internet right now. And, you know, I, I'd say the vast majority of blacks who would want to borrow money are online. I mean, they've got access to the internet. I mean, if they have no internet access at all, I don't think they should be borrowing any money. I mean, if you can't even get to that point in your life where you're online, then maybe you shouldn't be borrowing any money in the first place. Yeah, and then that goes to a broader question of how big is debt going to become in terms of the means with which people think that they can right themselves or create true equality, regardless of race, whether we're talking about, you know, Asian people, white people, people of different religions, people of different sexualities. When it comes to equality of opportunity, what kind of a role should debt play in trying to level those scales, right? Well, you know, first of all, consumer debt is actually a a, a detriment. It it actually uh, is an obstacle towards wealth creation. You know, one of the, the, the things that they talk about in Black Lives Matter is that, you know, there's a wealth gap between uh, African-Americans and, you know, white Americans. Well, consumer credit is going to widen that wealth gap to the extent that we try to make it easier for blacks to take on consumer debt to buy stuff, you know, whether it's through credit cards or to go out and buy a car uh, or, you know, take a vacation. All that makes you poorer, right? You, you, you don't get richer borrowing to consume. The only credit that will increase your net worth and make you richer is when you borrow to invest. And I'm not talking about buying stocks, right, on margin. I'm not talking about that kind of investment. I'm talking about an entrepreneur who has a small business who wants to make his business more productive. And to do so, he needs capital investment. And he doesn't have enough savings personally in order to afford to make the investments. So he goes to a bank and he presents his, his business plan and he shows the lender, hey, if I had $100,000, I can buy this extra equipment. And as a result, my productivity would go up and that extra productivity would allow me to repay this loan with the interest. And so if you can uh, invest in, in equipment and, and you know uh, 
whatever it is that your business needs, or maybe even hiring extra people. And the result of those expenditures generates extra income for you to the extent that the income that is generated exceeds the cost of borrowing the money, then the loan is self-liquidating. You're able to pay off the loan with the profits made on the investments that you made with the loan proceeds. And then eventually the loan is paid off and the investments are owned free and clear by the entrepreneur. So we certainly want black entrepreneurs to have access to a credit the way we would want white entrepreneurs to have access to credit, but we want to make sure that they're only given loans to the extent that they can show a viable business plan and a viable use of the money so that the bank does not lose its capital, that the savings of its depositors are not squandered on, on bad loans. But you know, the big problem is that banks don't have a lot of money to loan out because nobody's saving any money. Everybody is broke, uh, interest rates are zero, and the government has been taxing everybody's income. So these you know, uh, small banks don't have money to loan to anybody, black or white. The credit is being doled out through the Fed. It's being conjured in the thin air. And the, 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 the companies that have access to it are these major companies that can sell bonds to the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve just creates the credit out of thin air by printing it, as opposed to legitimate credit, which, is, which comes from underconsumption and, and sacrifice where people earn money but then save it instead of spending it. Those are the savings that would be uh, offered uh, you know, to Main Street entrepreneurs, but they're not getting it because of Fed monetary policy. So one thing the Fed could do to help entrepreneurs is to let interest rates go up and stop printing money and stop inflating asset bubbles. But it's doing the opposite of that. And, and, and so, that, you know, what I think is going to happen, Chris, is, look, we're just going to use this supposed racism, right? The fact that there's this systemic racism uh, that is the reason for all these problems, and we're now going to have to atone for sins that we did not commit. And this is going to be a catalyst for all sorts of government programs that are ultimately going to try to direct more funds to African-American individuals and households. Uh, so we're just going to have a much, much larger welfare state. Uh, welfare is not the solution to wealth inequality. Uh, it's not going to improve uh, the economic circumstances of the welfare recipients. Yes, in the short run, uh, they may uh, get some extra goods that they can buy uh, and so have a, a short-term increase in their consumption. Just like anybody who, you know, somebody wins the lottery and then they go out and blow the money, uh, you know, they have fun for a few years and then they're right back in the same circumstances that they were in before. I think that's where we're headed. Uh, but we're going to have to print a lot of money because nobody is talking about raising taxes uh, other than taxes on the rich. And there's not enough money there to cover reparations for slavery or wherever else these guys are going to think of. And I mean, if you remember the, the housing bubble, one of the problems back then was trying to force banks to make loans to minority borrowers who weren't actually credit worthy. Well, I think we're going to do that again, only in a bigger way. I think we're going to force more loans and I put loans in quotes because the money's not going to get paid back, you know, and, and people say, Oh, well, you know, Peter, is this racist to say that African-Americans won't repay the loans? Well, the ones that will pay the loans are, are likely getting the loans right now. <laughs> um, if, if the credit is available, they would get it. I mean, the, the people who are being turned down for loans are being turned down because it's, it's, it's not 
the best use of the the, the bank's uh, capital because they're worried that the loans won't get repaid. I mean, um, but and to the extent that credit is redirected to less credit worthy borrowers, who's going to suffer? The people who would have gotten the loans, but who are now not getting the loans because the money has been directed elsewhere. Uh, so the economy is going to be less productive. Uh, standard of livings are going to fall. But this has big uh, you know, implications for monetary and fiscal policy. We're going to have a lot much bigger deficits, uh, you know, a much weaker economy, much higher inflation. Uh, everybody's going to suffer from that. So <clears throat> Zero Hedge posted yesterday a screenshot of the Bloomberg terminal looking at a couple of the bond ETFs that the Fed is in, one of which is JNK, which of course stands for junk uh, because it is replete with junk bonds. And the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is now showing up as like a top five holder on many of these bond <clears throat> ETFs. And I noted yesterday that some of these bond backstops are going to companies like Berkshire Hathaway, you know, who has $43 billion in cash and is a $465 billion company and Warren Buffett's worth over $60 billion. Um, and I wanted to see if you wanted to comment on that and maybe explain to some of my listeners how this type of policy widens the inequality gap. You know, Paul Krugman rails <laughs> against inequality constantly without realizing that it's his policies that are widening the inequality gap. Yeah, well, anything that the Federal Reserve does that makes the economy less productive uh, is going to uh, you know, widen that gap because the economic growth that otherwise would take place absent the Fed intervention would disproportionately benefit uh, you know, people at the lower end of the spectrum by providing them with, you know, uh, a higher living standard with uh, more goods to buy and more and more employment opportunities. But, you know, if, if you look at what the Fed is doing, right, the, the same thing was going on during the housing bubble when you had Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that were not allowed to issue junk bonds directly going into the secondary market and buying the junk bonds that other companies were issuing. They were really right. kind of creating a market for junk, I mean, for subprime mortgages rather. Right. So they, they couldn't issue subprime mortgages because they had certain lending standards, which were still too lax. But then they were buying the subprime mortgages that these other lenders were originating, and they were kind of creating a market. And because they created a market, then the, the, the lenders were creating the supply because they knew they can unload it on the Fed, and, and and that's what's happening right now or on Fannie and Freddie. But that's what's happening now. You know, you have bond companies knowing that they can borrow money from the Federal Reserve, because the Federal Reserve is buying these bonds. So that basically means that the Federal Reserve is just directly lending this money to these institutions, and the Fed is obviously, you know, indiscriminately buying these things. It it is not, uh, you know, basing its decision on the viability of the loans. They're not charging a rate of interest commensurate with the risk of the loan. Right. So they're yeah. overpaying for all these bonds. And so they are lowering the cost of credit for all of these companies to a level that's much lower than what the market would price it. But at, at whose expense? You have to remember that the government doesn't create anything. The Federal Reserve doesn't create anything when it creates money or, or, or redirects credit. All it can do is kind of you know rearrange the deck chairs, 
right? So if money is, is, or credit is being directed towards certain companies, then it must have been directed away from other companies. And, and so, but, and, and when, the, when the government is trying to micromanage in the allocation of credit, as opposed to a free market, right, where the free market is gonna allocate credit to its highest and best use, it's gonna go to where the credit will do the most good. But when the government does it, it's all based on political considerations. None of it is based on what's actually good economics. And so just like any centrally planned economy, any socialist economy, when you have uh, you know, the central planner trying to make these decisions, they're never gonna be as good as the outcomes that would be derived from a free market. And so that's what we have, right? We're moving away from a free market or further away towards more of a centrally planned economy. And so the, the, the people who the Federal Reserve decides are the winners, right? These corporations right. whose junk bonds they're buying, uh, the Fed is basically picking them as a winner, but then they're picking all the losers because they're having to direct uh, money away from them. And a lot of these are smaller businesses. Many of these businesses could be minority owned businesses uh, that are basically getting screwed so that these uh, companies that really should go bankrupt and a lot of these companies that the Federal Reserve is keeping in business, if they allowed them to go, to go bankrupt, who would benefit? Well, a lot of their other competitors would benefit. A lot of the smaller businesses would be able to pick up that market share. They might be able to buy up uh, some of their equipment or uh, take over some of their you know, uh, uh, space, their, 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 their real estate, or they may be able to take, take these resources and more effectively utilize them but they're not being given that opportunity because these zombie companies are being propped up uh, by the Fed. And now because they have this advantage, they actually have an unfair competitive advantage against these other businesses who don't have uh, the Fed subsidizing their credit. In fact, now they may have to compete in ways that are unfair and it may be these smaller, more viable companies that end up going bankrupt because the government keeps these larger, less viable ones afloat. If they simply got out of the way and let the free market work, then a lot of these bigger companies would fail, but now a lot of these smaller companies would succeed and get even bigger. And they're better managed and they're more viable and they're actually satisfying the needs of, of, of consumers in, in, in a cost-effective way. The companies that are gonna go bankrupt but for the Fed's help are not doing that, right? They're destroying value. They should go out of business. And by keeping them in business, we are lowering our overall standard of living. And, and people, you know, they can always see the benefits. Oh, the Federal Reserve saved this company. It would have gone bankrupt, but for this company. Okay, that company was saved. Well, what companies got destroyed as a result of saving that one, right? No one, see, no one notices all the unseen negative consequences. They just see the company that gets saved. They don't see the other companies that are sacrificed in order to save the other one. Yeah, and I think if the public understood, this is something I was trying to get to yesterday. I mean, let's just ignore the fact for a second that printing money doesn't create productivity. It doesn't create jobs. We know that. Let's put that aside even for one second. If you just look at the sheer amount of money that has, being, that has just been generated out of thin air, right? Trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. If the average person understood how many trillions of dollars are being allocated towards 
Places like Berkshire Hathaway, companies that don't need it, the bond market, private equity. We're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars while the Fed throws everybody their $1,200 breadcrumb and not even everybody got that $1,200 payment because if you were a hard enough worker and you made over whatever, $100,000 a year the year prior, of course, you weren't entitled to free money. Yet the businesses and corporations that generate billions and dollars of cash and billions of dollars in net income, they're the ones that receive. So even if when you take the, the fallacy of the money printing out of the equation, still the way that the Fed has divvied the money up is egregiously disproportionate, right? Yeah, but I don't even think it matters whether the people who get the money need it or not. They shouldn't get it. I mean, just because you need money doesn't mean the government should give it to you. I mean, look, people need a lot of things, right? You know, that, or, and, and there's also a difference between what you need and what you want, too. I mean, and a lot of that is subjective. But, look, if, if you need something, you can't steal it from somebody else because that's all the government can do, right? Because the government doesn't have any of its own resources. The government only has resources that it takes from private citizens. Right. So to the extent that one company is getting money from the government because it needs it, well, the government has to take money away from somebody else. Well, doesn't the person who they're taking the money away from, does, don't they need that money? I mean, why should the government decide that one person's needs are, are, are more important than somebody else's needs? Right. They're taking the like, purchase. We have power. to get away from this idea that it's up to the government. Like when you look at these uh, the hearings yesterday that I was watching and the, the congressmen are saying, oh, you know, people can't pay their rent. They can't pay their mortgage. They can't pay, pay their utilities. Yeah, those are problems. They're not problems for the government to solve. And in fact, if these uh, politicians actually understood the role that they played in impoverishing so many Americans, that so many Americans live paycheck to paycheck because so much money is taken out of their paychecks when they earn them, so they don't have any money to save. And another reason they don't have any savings is because interest rates are so low and because the government through its policy has encouraged excess consumer credit. People have been borrowing money for credit cards and auto loans and student loans and mortgages uh, where they shouldn't have been borrowing money. They should have been saving money. And if people were saving money, then they would be able to uh, pay their rent uh, during a few months where they're unemployed or even more or pay their, uh, pay their bills. But the fact that the government has basically rendered everybody broke, now it doesn't mean that the government can actually do anything uh, to help people uh, pay these bills because the government doesn't have any money. The government itself is broke. Look at how much debt the government has. The national debt is like $27 trillion. The government doesn't have any money either, right? The government has to borrow, and of course nobody will lend, so they just print. And so what everybody wants is the Federal Reserve to print money and give it to people so they can pay their rent, give it to people so they can pay their mortgage. But ultimately what we're going to do is destroy the value of that money. And so then the landlord, what's the landlord going to do when he gets rent money that doesn't buy anything if he can't, if he can't uh, you know, pay the bills associated with the property? So eventually rent prices have to skyrocket and the price of everything has to go way up. We are going to unleash an unprecedented uh, inflationary tsunami on this country because you know, the other fallacy other than that you know, all these problems are the result of racism is that printing money doesn't have a cost that we can have anything we want right. so long as the Federal Reserve creates the money to pay for it. When in right, essence, that, that it, everything is free as long as we get it from the Fed. In essence, it's a redistribution of purchasing power. 
Yeah, I mean, what people don't get is government spending is taxation, right? Every dollar that the government spends, that money has to come from the public because it only gets its money from the public. Right. So that's why I said Donald Trump raised taxes. He didn't cut taxes. He raised taxes. Why? Because spending increased under his presidency, even before COVID-19. Trump was a big tax raiser because he was increasing government spending. And since government was spending more, then the public had to pay for it one way or another. Now, there are two ways that the public can pay. One is by giving the government their actual money, right? The government can take the taxes, take the money right out of your paycheck. And so now you don't have that money to spend. And then the government takes that money and, they, and it gives it to somebody else who spends the money that you earned. So now you, ha- you can buy less stuff because some of the money that you earned is being given to somebody else uh, to spend it. But the other way that they can tax you is if they just print the money, if the Fed just prints the money and then they give it to somebody else, and now that somebody else spends it, what happens? Well, prices have to go up. And now you can buy less stuff. Right. And the stuff that you can no longer buy is the stuff that the other guy bought. So either the government takes your money or they take your purchasing power. But either way, the result is you buy less stuff. It's like, And so it's this like, is what's happening. The, the, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, the government, the government is basically transitioning from a, a, a tax and spend to a print and spend. Right? right now, the government is printing about 55 cents for every dollar that's being spent. So we're not getting that 55 cents for nothing. We're not getting all this government for free. We're paying for it through inflation. Now, we haven't seen the big rise in prices yet, but we're going to see it soon. And one of the reasons that we haven't seen it is because this initial big increase in money printing, a lot of the dollars have been absorbed internationally. They're gone into the bond market. The dollar is still the reserve currency. And so we've been able to push off the effects of that inflation on the global economy by virtue of the dollar's uh, reserve status and the fact that we're able to run these huge trade deficits so that we can still consume stuff that we don't produce. Because when we print money and give it to people who are sitting at home, those people aren't producing anything, yet they're buying stuff. Well, because people in other countries are producing it and sending it here, but all they're getting from us is dollars. But we're very, very close to a collapse in the dollar. And as the world you know, moves away from the U.S. dollar, rejects it, uh, then our ability to postpone the day of reckoning is going to come to an end. And we're going to start to see far more immediate consequences of the inflation, not just the inflation that's being created today, but the inflation that we've been creating for decades now. Yeah, a good analog is printing money and not being able to create purchasing power from it and instead diluting purchasing power. It's very similar to, I mean, a good analog in my brain would be a company printing shares. When a company issues new shares, it doesn't increase the amount of equity in the company. It doesn't increase uh, you know, the, the bottom line. It just distributes it 
differently to shareholders. It just dilutes the way that it's distributed. And it's the same way with purchasing power. The more dollars that are printed, the more dilutive the purchasing power distribution is. And by directing those new dollars to places, the Fed can tip the balance of how the purchasing power is re- redistributed. Re- redistributed. What's the word I'm looking for? Redistributed. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, re- I mean, look... I- all the paper money is because it doesn't have any actual value. It's not gold anymore. It's just a piece of paper. So basically it's supposed to represent claims on the existing uh, supply of goods and services right? or the existing wealth. And, you know, since we earn money based on our contributions to society, right? The more we contribute, the more we earn uh, those earnings now allow us to, you know, take out, uh, goods and services in proportion to what we put in. Obviously, we're not withdrawing the same goods and services that we put in, but we're, we're, we're withdrawing them in proportion to our contributions. But when you have people that are just sitting at home collecting government checks, those individuals haven't produced anything. They haven't worked. So they haven't added anything into the pot, yet they're taking out just like everybody else. And, and so the more money that you just create and give to people who haven't produced anything, who haven't provided any goods or services, then all you're doing is causing the price of the goods and services that already exist to go up so that you now can distribute a smaller pool of goods and services to a larger pool of buyers. Right. You know, if you could, if you could create wealth by printing money, well then nobody would be poor. I mean, (laughs) you know, you you know, know, I, I, I jokingly, came up with a, 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 an idea for stimulus. I said, Hey, why don't we just let everybody, you know, add uh, six zeros to every dollar in blue ink, just write, write, put six zeros. So everybody would be a millionaire. If you have a dollar, you have a million dollars. I mean, wouldn't that solve our problems? I mean, I mean, and and then obviously say, Oh no, that would cause inflation. Okay. Well then how about five zeros? Does that cause what we or four zeros? Right. At what point? I mean, obviously, it doesn't work. It never works. But in the short run, sometimes people think it works because you can print money and it can make stock prices go up and then people think they're richer, you know, and then they can go out and, and borrow money against their appreciated assets and it worked for real estate. But all that is phony. And, it, and, and, and we're headed for a major, major financial crisis. You know, the, the, the politicians were, again, praising Powell. Like, oh, thank you for all this hard work and everything you've right. done to make sure we don't have another financial crisis. All he's done is made sure that the next financial crisis is way worse. It's, it's going to be a, a sovereign debt crisis. It's going to be a currency crisis, dollar crisis. It's going to be far worse than, than, than what we experienced in 08. So I have two more questions for you that I'm going to let you slide. I appreciate you being generous with your time this morning. You said on your podcast yesterday something that I found interesting. You may have seen I actually tweeted it out last night while I was listening. You know, all day yesterday, (laughs) Peter, I saw every headline yesterday was about how the Dow had such a great quarter. You know, the Dow was up 18%. It was the best recovery since whatever, the best quarter since the 80s or the 90s or whatever. But that was the headline all day yesterday. And I turned on your podcast, and one of the first things that you said was, the GDX over the same course of time was up like 60%, and the GDXJ, which those are both gold miner ETFs, was up 70%. And I'm thinking to myself, why the hell? 76. Yeah, why the hell didn't I hear about that? 
yesterday. I mean, I thought that was astonishing. Yeah, I mean, it was a good quarter for stocks, the best quarter in, I don't know, 20 years, whatever, approximately. But it was an even better quarter for gold stocks. And, of course, you can't talk about how great the second quarter was without talking about how horrible the first quarter was. Right. Because the only index <laughs> that's still positive on the year is the NASDAQ. Right. And, 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 the, and, the, and that's just because of these, you know, fang type stocks. But the Dow and the S&P, the Russell 2000, despite having fantastic second quarters, they're still negative on the year. The second quarter wasn't enough to erase the drop from the first quarter. And then it's not like the stocks had a great quarter based on the fundamentals of the stock market. Why did they have a great quarter? Because of unprecedented money printing by the Federal Reserve not only to monetize U.S. Treasury debt that skyrocketed, but to directly buy corporate bonds. I mean, of course, stock prices are going up if the government is buying up their bonds and overpaying for them in the process. I mean, so you, you, you have a completely artificial bubble in the stock market. Why should we be excited about that? What we should be talking about is what are the adverse consequences, right? What is the price that we're going to pay in the long run for this phony short-term boost to the stock market. Right, exactly. When uh, when I did my last podcast, uh, my last solo podcast, which was about a week ago, I brought up what I thought was quite a funny point that I wanted to get your take on, and then I have one final question for you, and that was, you know, you and I always talk about how you're not welcome on CNBC anymore, and then... You announced a couple of days ago that you were going to be back on Joe Rogan on July 14th, I think you said. And I just thought about how funny it was that you have kind of usurped all of traditional financial media and are going on really, I mean, possibly like the number one media outlet in the world this month. We always kind of make fun of and bitch and moan about financial news networks, about how they don't have the skeptics point of view, they don't have the Austrian economist point of view, and Peter Schiff isn't really welcome anymore. But I thought it was kind of funny that Peter Schiff now really has kind of left CNBC in the dust and will be going on a podcast that will be getting millions of views probably within 24 or 48 hours. So my mm -hmm. question to you is, uh, A, isn't that funny? And B... Uh, what do you plan on using the Rogan podcast as a platform for? Uh, is, what are you going to try to hammer home and get across? Well, you know, as I said, I've done the podcast three times before, so I'm not new to uh, the Rogan experience. And, yeah, I know every time I do go on there, I notice uh, there's a short-term bump in interest in, you know, my social media sites. You know, I see a pickup there. Um, but he does have a big audience. And, and so whenever I go on there, my, my goal is to influence the thinking of, of his audience. And you could tell too, from my appearances, and you can go back and you can see if you go on the YouTubes, he gets a lot more people that listen just, you know, to the podcast and then watch on YouTube. But if you go and look at the, my first three appearances, I mean, you'll see that I get a lot more um, thumbs down, um, then you would see, you know, on a typical Joe Rogan podcast, right? I mean, I get more thumbs up than thumbs down. Maybe it's, you know, two to three to one, but I mean, that's rare to get a guest 
where so many people are giving him the thumbs down. So clearly I'm very polarizing when I go on because, you know, he has a very mixed audience. There's a lot of liberals that listen. There's libertarians. There's conservatives. So obviously there are a lot of people that are just very, you know, uh, you know, they, they, they are not predisposed to even accept what I have to say. But what I'm hoping to do is to get a lot of those people to actually listen to the three-hour discussion and maybe do so with an open mind. And that maybe some of the people that I'm talking to, I have a chance to influence. I mean, when I do my own podcast, uh, in many cases, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. I mean, people are listening to my podcast because they agree with me. Not that many people just start listening to it uh, and, and, and then eventually agree with me. I don't even think they would start listening if they weren't already, uh, you know, I mean, sharing a lot of my perspective or they, they wouldn't seek out the podcast, but people like to listen to Joe Rogan. And so there's going to be a lot of people that are going to let, are going to hear the Joe Rogan podcast that wouldn't go and listen to one of my, my podcasts. Uh, and so I'm going to speak to people, uh, where I have a chance to, to change their minds, remove the needle. And, you know, that's, um, one of the reasons I did the Occupy Wall Street thing uh, back in Zuccotti Park, which ended up getting millions and millions of views on all sorts of YouTube channels over the years. Um, and I still get emails every single day from that YouTube video, um, even though I did it you know, almost 10 years ago. And most of the emails are from people who were liberal and who are no longer liberal, you know, who are now, you know, free market guys, libertarian type guys. And I help put them on that path that, you know, they heard me talk and they listened to the conversations and it really made them think. And, and, you know, so that's, that's what my hope is. I mean, yes, there'll be a lot of people that listen to Joe Rogan that already agree with me and, and that's fine. And, and maybe I'll give them some, uh, some information that they, that might be helpful to them in, 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 you know, persuading their friends or just maybe hammering home some points that, you know, that, that, that they, that they've made themselves. And of course, a lot of those people, if they're already listening to my podcast, um, then, then they've heard all that stuff. Uh, but there is a chance that there'll be a lot of like-minded people that are on listening to Rogan that, that haven't listened to me that don't really know much about me. And then when they hear me for the first time, it's, Hey, I like this guy. This guy's saying a lot of good stuff. I like, uh, the points that he's making. Let me check out his, his podcast and, 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 you know, they'll listen. And so I'll pick up some new listeners and then some of those listeners may become clients of mine. They may decide that they want me to manage some of their money. They may want to buy some of my mutual funds. So then I'll actually monetize the appearance, uh, because I'll end up uh, getting more customers. But, Again, what I really want to do is focus on the people who uh, are a liberal and, 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 and wake up as many of them as I can. I mean, I recognize that you know, it's going to be a, a minority of the people that I'm going to be able to influence, but that's important. You know, uh, Just like the Occupy Wall Street uh, influenced a lot of people. I think every time I go on Joe Rogan, uh, I open up some eyes. And I know that people have a natural progression from being right. liberal to being conservative. I mean, that's just how uh, we evolve, right? That's where that expression comes from. If you're not a liberal by the time, uh, you know, you're 
22, you, you don't have a heart, but if you're not a conservative by the time, you know, you're 28, you don't have a head, you know, it's just that, you know, the, the liberal ideology appeals to people on a basic level of caring for their fellow human beings, which, which we all do. I mean, there's, there's not that many of us who couldn't give a shit about, you know, about other people. I mean, humans are naturally uh, caring about their fellow man, right? People are generally good. Not all people are good, but most people are. And so most young people, you know, they, they think that the way you do good is to have government programs. And they don't know any better. But as you get older and you realize the negative consequences of those well-intentioned programs and that they actually make the problems worse that you're trying to solve, uh, then as you begin to start thinking with your head instead of your heart, then your intellect drives your compassion. And then you understand right. uh, the real road to prosperity is free market capitalism, not socialism. And, and so I know a lot of people are going to make this journey anyway. I just want to give them a little push. Right? It's not I just like, want to help like, those people. Sorry. It's not like we all don't want to arrive at the same ends, right? We all want equality and we all want prosperity and we all care for each other. Well, B, you got to be careful with equality. I mean, we all equality want of equality. Well, not even equality of opportunity because not everyone is going to have the same opportunity. Look, if you are born to you know, let's say wealthy parents that have a lot of connections, you're going to have more opportunity than somebody who's, you know, just born, uh, you know, to poor parents with no connections. So not everybody is going to have the same opportunity. And it's not up to the government to level the opportunity playing field. That's not what government can do. Everybody needs to be equal under the law, right? So everybody has equal rights, right? I have a right to life, a right to liberty, to pursue happiness, a right to privacy, property, but I don't have a right to any opportunity. I have to make my own opportunities. Now, the government does, you know, can't erect barriers to, to me pursuing my, my opportunities, but they can't say, oh, we need to provide opportunity on some equal level. And I also don't believe in, you know, equality of outcome, which a lot of people think, oh, we should right. all be equal. No, I mean, how can we all have an equal outcome when we don't all work as hard? We don't all have the same ambition. We don't all have the same work ethic or intelligence or even luck. Right. I mean, luck plays a part in it too. I mean, we all can't get lucky. I mean, so life is not fair. You just have to make the most of it, you know, with what you can. And yes, we all have equality under the law. We all have the right to, to succeed to the best of our own ability to go as far as our own ambition and talent can take us. But the government can't make sure that everybody has the same opportunities. What you have to do as an individual is make sure that you take advantage of every opportunity that you have, you know, and make the best of the opportunities that you have, you know? And, 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 and if you do that, there's been a lot of people who have gone from rags to riches. There've been a lot of people who didn't, who weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth, who didn't have all kinds of connections and all kinds of help from their parents. And they manage to become wildly successful. On the other hand, you can have it. There's, there's examples of people who were born with everything, right? People that had all the opportunities and they just squandered them and they just right. became bums. Right. You know, I mean, there's plenty of people who have just inherited all sorts of money and just squandered it, you know, <laughs> you know, so, you know, so you can have a lot of opportunity and make nothing of it. 
and you can have very little opportunity, but make everything out of it. Uh, but you know, and, and people say, well, the government has to educate everybody. See, I don't even believe that. I mean, I, I think that the free market does a better job of educating than the government. I think parents uh, would do a better job of educating their kids if they had choices to make rather than having some government monopoly say, hey, your kid's going to go here. And then you're going to put them in some institution where they don't learn anything, where they're actually prevented from learning stuff. Um, yeah, I thought but you're... yeah, so when the people are... Yeah, so it's you know when people can't talk about it, we all it's all equality or equality of opportunity, we don't have it. We just all have to be equally free. We all have the same rights, right? We don't have uh, rights based on our race or our gender or our sexual orientation. There are no such thing as group rights. We just have individual rights, and we all have the same individual rights. We all live under the same law, and we all abide by you know the the, the same rules, uh, but. The opportunities that each of us have are going to be different, and whether or not we, we choose to make the most of those opportunities is also going to be different. Uh, but it's not up to the government to try to, uh, you know, to, to, to alter that. The government just has to leave us alone. Right? <laughs> the government just has to stay away and protect our rights. Yeah, it's very funny sometimes when I put up like a tweet I put up yesterday about – Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway getting that backstop from the Fed because I'll get this huge chunk of retweets from people that, you know, are my podcast listeners, your podcast listeners, people coming from a libertarian point of view. And then there's always, you know, sometimes it kind of drifts into very like far left circles and I'll get the occasional far left person retweeting that probably wouldn't retweet my account if they knew my stance on other issues, but they agree with that. Mm -hmm. They know that there's something fucked up about it. They know that there's something wrong about it. And so the point that I was trying to make is a lot, you say equality under the law, which I thought was a good way to put it. The point I was trying to make is that we, a lot of us strive for things that are very similar. It's just the the big difference is the means with which we believe getting there uh, works, right? Yeah, and the, the liberals, look, there are certainly a lot of liberals that may object to corporate welfare on the grounds that the corporations don't need the money. You know, you know why should we you know, give wealthy corporations or wealthy individuals more money, right? They don't need it, they have plenty. Right. But it's, again, as I said earlier, it's not about need. It's about the moral principle of theft. The government is not supposed to take money from some people and give it to other people. That's just not why government exists. That's not why the U.S. government exists. The U.S. government exists to secure, to secure our rights. That's why we have a government, to secure our liberties, not to give us stuff, but to provide us or, or to protect our rights, to protect our freedoms so we can acquire our own stuff. Right? We, because anything the government gives you, they must take from somebody else. And so, uh, but that's not right for the person who has his things taken. Right. Now, yes, you know, the, the, since we do have a government, we all have an obligation to support that government, uh, but we don't have an obligation to support each other. We, you know, now people can have a moral obligation to do that, and I think people do that, and I think people you know, donate to charities all the time. And I think we'd have a lot more charitable giving if we had a freer economy with a smaller government because we'd have a lot more resources uh, to be charitable with our own money rather than outsourcing that to the government that is a very inefficient uh, you know, distributor of, of charity. 
you know, when you have governments redistributing charity, generally about 10 cents out of every dollar goes to the intended recipients. Whereas in the free market, it's the reverse. 90 cents goes to the, right. the, the, the recipients and, and only 10 cents gets consumed with the administrative costs. The government, I and mean, it's all administrative, it's a complete waste. But more, more than just the money that government charity wastes, it's the destruction of the incentive. Government uh, uh, welfare programs are designed to keep people impoverished, to keep people dependent, so that they need the, the welfare forever, so that the politicians can keep getting their votes by promising them the welfare that they need. Right? The government cripples them and then says and then gives them the crutch. And now that you're dependent on a government crutch, you keep voting for, for government. What private charity wants to do is they want to give you a, a hand up, a, a hand up, right? They want to help you out so that you no longer need the charity in the future, right? They, 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 they're, they're just there to be a temporary uh, uh, source of money during hard times, but they want to help rehabilitate you. They want to get you back on your feet. They want to promote self-sufficiency so that you no longer need the charity. The last thing the government wants is welfare recipients to be self-sufficient because then they don't need the government anymore. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so it, you know, exactly. Yeah, that's why I said, that's why black lives matters wants to convince everybody that they can't succeed because of racism, because now you need government to fight the racists. You know, uh, you know, they, they, they don't want people taking responsibility for their own lives. They just want to surrender to government. They want to think the only way forward is for the government to give me stuff. I, I can't earn it myself. I need to have the government take it from other people and give it to me. And, and that's unfortunately, you know, what yeah, this country has become. But, you know, this is all going to come to an end when the dollar crashes because people have taken for granted because we've been living with this dollar privilege, which I mentioned in my podcast. That's the real privilege. It's not white privilege. It's the dollar privilege right. that, that everybody enjoys. Whites, black, Hispanics, we all have that. And that's enabled us to live beyond our means. That's enabled us to consume without producing, to borrow without saving. And that's what's given way to this idea that we can have whatever we want as long as the government creates the money because we have the rest of the world doing all the work. And so when this thing, when the dollar crashes and we have massive inflation, then all this stuff is going to be in the backseat. But the, the, the other issue is going to be in, in the midst of all this economic hardship and despair and, you know, and, and shortages and, you know, uh, blackouts and long lines and rationing and unemployment and, and civil unrest. I mean, all this stuff is going to get worse. I mean, what we're seeing now is just a taste of what's coming when we have real economic hardship, right? I mean, because the fact that people were able to be, uh, you know, placated with government uh, extended unemployment benefits, the fact that so many unemployed people are making more money unemployed than when they were working, that's kind of quieted the mob. Uh, but when the, the dollar collapses and these checks don't buy anything and there's nothing to buy, I mean, right now, you know, people can stay at home and not work and use government money uh, to order stuff on Amazon. But what happens when Amazon shelves are empty, when there's nothing coming in from China, <laughs> you know, and you, you know, you can't buy anything. So it, 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 then it's going to be, you know, where is the country going to go? Because the, the, the electorate is already so predisposed to blame capitalism for every problem and to look to government for every solution. We are in a very, very vulnerable 
uh, position in, in, on our road to serfdom. I mean, we can end up in, in a real totalitarian society. I mean, what we've seen recently with COVID-19 and all these ordered, you know, stay-at-home orders and, you know, shutdowns, this is just a taste of the type of power that we have already given the government. And I just can imagine how they're going to use and abuse that power uh, during this coming, uh, you know, economic crisis of, of uh, you know, inflation and, and stagnation. Yeah, Peter, I know you have a hard stop here. I appreciate you uh, very much coming on this morning. Before I let you go, do you have a 4th of July weekend cocktail recommendation for my listeners? <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'll leave that to you as far as, uh, you know, what, what to recommend. I mean, I don't think there's going to be a lot of cookouts or things going on uh, this 4th of July. You know, I think they banned the fireworks celebration. So it's going to be kind of a low key uh, not as many, uh, you know, people gathering together, uh, maybe just, uh, you know, your, you know, your immediate family, or maybe, a, you know, maybe you can get a few friends or relatives, uh, coming over this, uh, what's, this 4th of what's July. What's Peter Schiff going to drink this, this long weekend? I know you'll have a drink. What, what will you have? Uh, you know, I, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I might have a beer or I, you know, I might have, a, you know, you know, some, I'm sure I'll have some wine. We just actually got a bunch of wine delivered to the house yesterday. So, uh, well, I'm sure we'll have some wine, but yeah, I mean, we, you know, I mean, we drink a lot of, you know, vodka in the house. My mom likes vodka, so that's always around. All right. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, look, it's going to, I'm sure it'll be a pretty low key, uh, stay at home, uh, Connecticut weekend, you know, so I enjoy the time I'm here in Connecticut now because, you know, I spend most of my time, as you know, in uh in puerto rico but you know one thing I, I i wanted to throw out there i meant to mention it and this is a little bit food for thought too if you know i mentioned my occupy wall street um uh experience and if you go to my website you know or my youtube channel and it, the video video i my video there has about two million a little over two million views and i didn't even put that one up until a couple of years ago and in fact i did it before uh a rogan podcast because i want you know i thought people would might want to watch it yeah and um the interesting thing about that is okay this is in 2009 and i go into the into the very dead center of the occupy wall street protests and these protests were going on in other cities it wasn't just in new york yeah, but, but new york was new the york. heart of it on right. wall street right. yeah yeah but they they had them you know other places so i went down there by myself, well, with my brother and a guy with a <laughs> with a with a camera, and I uh, went in the I went in the I went in the very middle of it. Right. And there were a couple hundred people around me, and there was no police there or anything that I noticed. And I had a sign that said, "I'm the one percent," right? And and that and I was the you know that's what everybody was angry with. It was the one percent right. that were the bad guys, right? Yeah. I was the the subject of the protest. So I came down there and not only was I one of the 1%, I was in the investment business. I mean, I didn't technically work on wall street, but I was in that industry, right? I was in brokerage, asset management, banking, all that. Right. So I went down there into the middle of all this and said, yep, I disagree with everything you're saying. Um, and let's talk about it. Let's have a discussion because I want to prove to you that you're wrong and I'm right. Right. And so, and I'm there for two or three hours and not at one point was there any violence or right. even any pushing, any in your face. None of the protesters 
uh, you know, were anything but courteous to me. I mean, well, some of them had ridiculous points that they were making. A couple of them called you an idiot. And, they were screaming. And yeah, were- but I mean, but yeah, but that's something that happens when you're losing an argument. You kind of resort to that. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I've called people idiots too, right? right. But it's still a, a, a rational discussion, nonviolent, right. where they're open to my perspective, even if they don't necessarily agree with it. And they're they're making their points. Can you imagine what would happen if I tried that today? If oh, I tried yeah. to show up, you know, at one of these Black Lives Matters thing, or if I showed up in that in that town of Chop or whatever the hell they call it now? If I if I tried to show up and explain to these guys that they're wrong, you'd get shot. <laughs> oh my God! You would. You get the so shit. So think about out. how much what's happened to our society. Over the course of a decade, right? Because it's probably the same type of people. It's the same people who would have been doing the Occupy Wall Street protests that are that are doing a lot of these. But now, I mean, and there was no looting at Occupy Wall Street. There were no riots associated with those protests. Yeah, no, it was but mostly it, it was mostly bought. people just milling around and. And chilling out. And yeah, that video is great. I encourage my listeners, if you haven't watched it, it's on Peter's YouTube channel. And uh, it's three hours. Yeah, because I would love to be able to do something similar to that with, you know, Black Lives Matter and Tifa. But I mean, I don't know that I'd survive it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that you would. I'm not, as your lawyer, I wouldn't recommend you doing that. But <laughs> the, Yeah, the only kind of video, the only kind of thing that I've ever contemplated doing with that would be and it would be something similar to what I did with the DNC. Did you see my my yeah. video? Do you want to ban um, profits? <laughs> yeah, because there I pretended I was one of them. Right. And I I pretended I was a big liberal, and I just wanted to see how far to the left I could push everybody. Right. And it's amazing that now the party has actually gone beyond where I was trying to push it. Right. <laughs> and yeah. it's a funny video because I and my funniest part of the video is. You know, I'm saying the stupidest things that I can think of, right? Because that's how you imitate a liberal. <laughs> Just say the stupidest things that, that come to mind. And so I'm saying one idiotic thing after another. And then there's this woman that says, this woman says to me, you know, you're the smartest person I've met since I've been here. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's how, that's how you prove to a liberal how smart you are, by saying the dumbest things that you can think of. Uh, and they, they, so I thought about, you know, doing something like that, just, uh, you know, going to these protests and like, yeah, being one of them, but they're already so extreme without me. I mean, I don't have to push them far to the left. They're already, they've already gone so far without me. I don't even know if there's any room left for me uh, to take them, you know, to make it even more ridiculous than it already is. Yeah, and then by the time they realize they're being ridiculed, it's already on the internet and you're, you know, thousands yeah. of miles away in Dorado, Puerto Rico, sipping <laughs> some of that case of wine on looking at the beach. Yeah. By the way, I saw a photo of the view from yeah. your, uh, I don't know where, maybe on one of your, uh, YouTube videos or some oh you did an interview yeah. with somebody that came down to your house in Puerto Rico and I saw the view from your house it's fucking beautiful man I gotta come down well there. the view from my condo is much the view my condo is on the beach so I have a nice ocean view so you might oh, have saw the condo was, my yeah. house the view of my house is just of my own property I guess like although I can see the ocean when I go you know up the second floor but not not on the roof I get a nice ocean view but through most of the problem I just see my property and I see the trees in the community and stuff it's not bad but my condo is right on the ocean so I get that whole tropical view of, of, of the water and all that yeah I'm gonna come so, down and be the pool boy for a week Peter 
<laughs> you know, show up in a speedo with one of those uh, big things that fishes all the uh, shit out of the pool and live in the pool house. All right. Uh, well, it doesn't sound that appealing to me, but. <laughs> <laughs> all right, brother Peter. Thank but, you. You know, so- you're always welcome to come visit. I will. And trust me, I'll take you out one of these days. Thanks so much, Peter. I appreciate you. Speak to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was the one, the only, Peter Schiff, my absolute favorite economist. And uh, very nice of him to make time for me today, especially after I gave him some nonsense, some shit on Twitter yesterday. So, all right, fools, heading into the long weekend. Appreciate you guys very much. It's Patreon day two. It's first of the month. So thank you guys so much that continue to contribute to the podcast because you make shit like this. Uh, possible, and I appreciate it because uh, I have fun doing it, and it gives me a laugh. Right now, it's the middle of the day. I should be working. That's what I'm going back to doing. I got shit to do. I'm out of here. Peace.